Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Politics. I'm your host, Jeff Bloodworth. Um, Mormons and gays. What two um, issues could be more related to the 2012 presidential election? Obviously, Mormons, we're talking about Mitt Romney, gays, homosexuality, civil unions, gay marriage. I mean, these are the, uh, this is the, or one of the, wedge issues that have been shaping and defining modern American politics over the past, what, 20, 30 years. Um, This week, we're going to be talking to Craig Harline, who's written a book uh, titled Conversions, uh, Two Family Stories um, from the Reformation in Modern America. And on its face, this really inventive uh, book doesn't seem like it would have a whole heck of a lot to do with politics, but this is a really subtle um, special and altogether inventive way uh, or inventive book that that Harline has has written, and it, and it touches directly upon these two very hot button issues um, that that directly pertain to the 2012 presidential election. Um, so anyway, we're going to spend some time talking to uh, Professor Harline and and talking about his book, and I uh, hope you stick around and uh, enjoy the uh, interview on our conversation, and uh, feel compelled to go out and buy uh, Craig's new book. All right, thanks. Craig Harline. Yes, this is Craig Harline. Ah, Harline. Hey, this is Jeff Bloodworth. Welcome to New Books and Politics. Thanks a lot. Okay, um, I got to admit, I was was really blown away by your book, and uh, I was reviewing it for a journal, and I thought to myself, I got to have this guy on the podcast. Um, and this, this is, this is not, I don't usually say this sort of stuff. I really thought your book conversions was really, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a special kind of book. Uh, c- congratulations. I'm sure. You, and it's won all kinds of awards, but, uh, you know, let, let me add myself to that list of folks. No, thanks a lot. Yeah. Nice um, first, if we could just start off with, if you could just tell us a little bit about your, um, you know, background, your basic biography, a little bit about your educational background. Sure. I uh, went to school uh, in the 70s, um, got an undergraduate degree at BYU, then a PhD at Rutgers. Um, taught at the University of Idaho for a little while, then I've been at Brigham Young University for 20 years now. I've um, written mostly on subjects in European history, European religious history, especially during the Reformation. What I found this is so interesting. Um, I I kind of picked your book out to review. Kind of just I was interested in reading something outside my field. I, I do 20th century U.S. political history, and uh, I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I saw modern America, and I thought I, I want to learn a little bit more about American religious history. <laughs> um, and, and so what I really loved, I loved your. I guess it was in your preface. Uh, when you talked about the uh, Dutch archives and the lack of mm-hmm. air conditioning, could you just 
tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, what it's like to kind of do the research and what, I guess this is early modern Europe. I mean, in, in, in kind of the reformation, just tell us a little bit about right. like where you have to go and the sort of conditions that you have to struggle through in your, uh, in your research. Right. right. Well, one of the stories is set in the 17th century, my usual, uh, century of work. And, um, and for that, in fact, that's how the whole project started. For that, I'm usually in Europe just about every summer, sometimes during the school year. Uh, I'm there doing research. And I suppose that, I mean, you as an American historian, you probably also get that you know great feeling when you go to an archive. And there are probably some archives that you have to work pretty hard to get into as well, and their conditions aren't ideal. But I think you especially feel that if you go far away, you know, if you're, if you're just really out of your comfort zone, you're in a new culture, uh, new time zones, you know, people back home aren't awake when you're awake. And mm-hmm. so you just feel, you just feel uh, kind of lost in a world. There are different rules, different ways of doing yeah. things. And, um, and so that's, that's how it is in a lot of the archives in, uh, in Europe. Now, in some countries that are better organized than others and some archives, some sorts of archives are better organized than others. Um, and, and, but it always makes such an impression on me that I think I've written about it in every book I've, I've actually produced. Because uh, it just it's just huge. It just it becomes part of the book, almost at least for me. And I, I don't. Other people seem to like hearing the stories as well. Sometimes I think they're more interested in how you find the documents than they are in what you have to say about them. But, yeah. <laughs> but but it, but I can understand that because it's really moving for me too. And these particular documents for this book I just found in the National Archives of Belgium, which are very nicely organized. Um, they were right in an inventory. I didn't have to do any looking through uncatalogued papers or, you know, try to get on the good side of the archivist, bring in uh, bribes and things hmm. like that so that I could get in. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little facetious sure, here. Sure. Belgium is not that serious, but some of my friends where places they go, they actually have to do things like this. But, um, so this one was actually pretty well organized and, um, I just saw the items that I was interested in in the inventory. They mentioned a journal from this kid, you know, in 1654. And so, you almost never see journals from that period of time. Yeah. And you, and so you always order them and to see just what's in there, even no matter what else you're working on. And um, sometimes they're very disappointing. Sometimes they're laundry lists. Sometimes they're a list of things to do. Um, but this one was actually a bona fide, you know, emotional journal with all kinds of detail in it about this, how this fellow was feeling and what was going through his mind. So it was really, uh, it was really something. I, I don't know that yeah, I mean, I've discovered other things that were also just as moving, I suppose. But it was one of those really that was up there at the top of the list. Yeah, you do a nice job of, you know, you're in this sweaty archive and you kind of raise <laughs> both arms like in a touchdown or some some sort of pose. <laughs> and so just to give, you know, listeners a sense, I mean, you have two different narratives, one from the 17th century, one from the 20th and 21st century. And you, you pronounce the last name of this family, the Rolandus? Right, the Rolandus family. Yeah. yeah, and it's a story of the son Jacob, and as he's um, he's grows up in this what this sort of uh, important Protestant family, um, and he is, converts and becomes a, a Jesuit. Is that correct? Right. First, he becomes a Catholic, and then years later, he becomes a Jesuit. That's right. Yeah, and it, and, and what I thought was so great, um, I mean, it, it your source material is you were able to really, you know. And all this wonderful detail, you know, walk us through this, you know, the the emotional torment, right, that this kid went through and in, in, in the sort of, 
you know, emotions wrought upon his family through his conversion. Right. And you did right. it. It was wonderful. I mean, you, you really have a novelist's eye for details. I mean, you really oh. bring it, take us, and I'm, this is not my special t- specialization at all. I mean, I was absolutely captivated. Um, oh, thanks. And, you know, 17th century, I do contemporary history. This, this to me is, is ancient history if we're talking right. 17th century. And, right. and then if you could just tell, tell us a little bit, you know, and so then you, you also kind of merge this. Could you tell us a little bit about the other narrative that you've kind of merged this and I guess juxtaposed it against? Sure. Right. The other one said in the 20th century, as you said, and that's a whole different world for me. One of the things about working in the 17th century, and you mentioned that kind of novelistic feeling in it, is because you don't, you're not used to having a whole lot of detail to work with, of detailed sources. And as a 20th century historian, you probably, you probably don't always have that feeling. I mean, I understand that in just about any project, you don't always have everything you want. Sure. You want to know people's motives and things like that. But we're always got, we've always got these gaping holes. And, and so you, to tease them out, you almost have to engage in these other sorts of techniques. And I, I think that's no accident why microhistory tends to be written in the early modern, uh, about early modern subjects or medieval subjects rather than modern subjects. There's just too much detail in, in, in modern subjects. So when I shifted to this modern subject, it wasn't that I was doing so much archival research, but it was based more on interviews and things because the people were still alive. And so, and based on my own experience uh, as an American citizen, as a Mormon uh, growing up, so it was those contexts that I drew upon rather than a whole bunch of scholarly things where I usually work, you know, when writing about Reformation subjects. So the, the, as I was uh, studying my 17th century subject, I just kept thinking, you know, this is so familiar. This sounds so mm. familiar. And it, I thought of the many stories that I knew nowadays of families upset by conversion, because that's what happened in the 17th century story. This, this fellow, you know, he converts to Catholicism. His family's just furious, especially his father, who's a Protestant preacher. And the boy was destined to become a Protestant preacher, too. His grandfather had been a, you know, a famous Protestant preacher, like a celebrity preacher. So, you know, there were lots of these that I knew of in the 70s of people who changed faiths and upset their family. And so, you know, the more I started thinking about it, um, the more I started thinking, you know, this, this problem is still with us. And then I realized it, it also has taken on some other forms. Because we like to think, oh, we're so much more religiously tolerant, you know, than mm-hmm. those people in the Reformation. We don't have these religious arguments and wars, at least, you know, within, within our own Western culture or whatever, which isn't quite true. But, you know, we like to think that, that, that yeah. we're so much more tolerant. And, and so I realized, you know, but we have other ways that the shock of your child converting might be just as strong uh, in, in these other ways as they would be if it was a religious conversion itself. I thought about politics, and then and then I thought of my friend, whose whose particular thing was his sexuality, right? I mean, um, there are some families today, again, still torn by religion, but some families do perfectly well with it, but they might be torn by something else. Yeah. Um, there's a great book by James Carroll about his uh, mm. experience uh, in the Vietnam War, right? His, his he grows up to become a priest. His father is one of the leading architects of the Vietnam War, and he and his father just are absolutely estranged by this war. So, you know, it can be any number of things that, that every generation has to deal with. And with my friend that I ended up writing the second story about in my book, it was his homosexuality. At first, that wasn't the problem, though. His, his first, his, his story took the classic Reformation-style conversion of, you know, he converted from his family's evangelical tradition to Mormonism. And that's how I met him. 
you know, we were in the same young adult group. I was 18 years old, and, uh, you know, he was 24. He's like the leader of the group, so he's kind of welcoming the new members. And anyway, we got to be good friends. But then he realizes, uh, and he was a great, he was a great young adult leader, and he was yeah. just, you know, a super, super achieving sort of Mormon fellow. And his family was really upset. Um, his, you know, his family just couldn't believe that their intelligent son, you know, would convert to a cult like Mormons, as they mm-hmm. thought of it. And so it was really disturbing to them. And they didn't quite uh, alienate themselves from each other the way that the 17th century family did. The 17th century family broke up after three years. They never talked to each other again. You know, the rest, half of the boy's life, he never saw his family or talked to them again or corresponded. Uh, so my friend's family uh, didn't quite, um, you know, go to, go that far, but they were close. There was real tension about this whole thing. Well, after three years as a Mormon, and here was the modern twist of the story to make it more than just a Reformation story, was that he realized he was gay and um, and this didn't come out right away, but decided to move to Switzerland with his partner and so on. And um, and and so that's, you know, what he did for several years. And finally, his, his parents found out. And, you know, his parents had been thrilled that he was no longer Mormon, <laughs> but they didn't, they didn't know the real reason why. Yeah. You know, because he felt, he felt as a gay man in the 70s, he could not be both Mormon and gay. And, you know, I remember... Uh, having the impression that that was true. You could, nowadays, you can. You can be gay and you can be Mormon, you know, as, as long as you're celibate. It's kind of the same as the Catholic policy, the official yeah. Catholic policy. But at the time, you know, there just wasn't a choice. So he, that's why he felt like he had to quit uh, the church. And, and so his parents were thrilled about that. But then, you know, years later, they found out why, and it just it was even more devastating to them. You know, first Mormonism and now this, you know. So, uh but but then the story kind of goes through and shows how they managed to reconcile, um, despite their differences, while the 17th century family, much better educated, you know, than the parents of, of my friend, um, they were not able to reconcile their differences. Yeah, I, you know, and maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about, you see this, um, I've seen it at least, maybe so rarely, um, especially, I mean, this is a Yale University Press book, and, you know, this new series called New Directions in Narrative History. Um, right. You know, how did, you know, did you have to struggle a lot in thinking, how can I do this? I'm an academic historian. I'm oh, gonna... sure I did. <laughs> could you, could yeah. you, um, how did you eventually just, just decide to plunge in? Well, I like writing narrative. I always have. And so, you know, but I don't, I didn't, I think I realized I didn't just want to do the same kind of book I'd done already. But not only that, the more I thought about that 17th century story, the more I thought about how it resonated today, the more I decided, you know, here's one time where I'd like to actually say what I think this old story means for our particular society today. Yeah. You know, if if I'd been an Asian, if I'd been somewhere in Asia and I'd grown up uh, in China or Japan and I'd been a historian, you know, I would have been trying to say, how did this story have anything to do with my society there? But, you know, I'm an American. I grew up here. So I want to say why this story has appeal beyond its particular appeal for a specialist historian. Um, because I think historians feel, especially those who study the distant past and who study faraway places, um, they feel a connection to that past. They, mm-hmm. they, they almost understand without even thinking about it that this stuff matters right now. Yeah. Um, but we don't usually talk about that out loud. We just assume it. We feel it. Um, but the problem is people who might be interested in what we have to say don't see the relevance 
of what we do. Like you study 20th century American history, that seems immediately relevant to a modern American, right? You, yeah, don't, you probably sure. never have to apologize for that. You never have to explain uh, <laughs> and say explicitly, hey, this is why this matters. But uh, totally, if you study yeah. of, if you study obscure people of the Reformation, you know, <laughs> who live in the countries far away and other religions, uh, speaking other languages, you, you might have to say why this matters. And so that's why I decided to do this. I wanted to say for once, not just I feel like this matters and, and leave it there, which I've done for my other books. You know, they, they all had some kind of personal, personal resonance. But it was because this time I think I want to say explicitly what I think this story might mean for someone living in America right now. You know what what this has to do with us. So, story specifically written for an American audience. You know, I wouldn't just want to translate it into other languages because I, I think they'd be scratching their heads about what you know what the heck's going on here. Yeah. But um, but for an American audience, I, I think it's it's a way to say, yeah, here's here's why I think 17th century history matters for us right now. Yeah, you and I have exact different problems. I do contemporary U.S. political history, and I, I generally try right. to avoid telling people that if I. <laughs> they'll ask you if you're getting your hair cut, that sort of thing, because then, you know, of course, it's a great thing. They want to talk about it, but then they also want to tell you, you need to be interviewing me. That's, <laughs> but I imagine if you did Reformation <laughs> history and you tell yeah. just a random person, their eyes glaze over. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, if I, I have a colleague. I have a colleague in my department who studies 20th century American history. And we were talking about a graduate student we had who was in one of his classes, and, and she was doing Reformation history, but she was in his class, and he's an excellent student, but he was saying to me, you know, uh, she's really bright. We've got to get her working on some important subjects, though. You know? and, and, and I'm like, hey, do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to the Reformation historian. So, you know, That's to me, awesome. it is important. And, and it's not just important in an academic way. You know, like we have our own little careers and we have our own little uh, social circles and we have our conferences. And I don't just mean important that way. I, I mean, it's important for, you know, getting ideas about living right now for anybody. Oh, and yeah. and so that's that, you know that's what I was trying to show. Yeah, I mean you did such a I mean, and and you know I, I I one of the classes that all historians here teach we teach kind of a an introductory freshman you know Western right. Civ class and you try to talk about you know the cat you know the Reformation and the Counter Reformation, and then I read you know uh, what Jacob Rolandus and his you, know, you did such a, a fantastic job of making the Catholic Protestant divide so real, uh, you know, especially for some, you know, yeah, I know a little bit about this era, but you really bring it to life and just the way yeah. it was such a, you know, um, a, a, it was the real divide of the 17th century in the way that it seems to me that, you know, these, these, these supposed cultural wedge issues are the divide today. I mean, that's how right. I think about it, at least. People well, that's argued what, and fought yeah, about theological issues in a way that we argue and fight about political issues today. Is that... That's it, that's very that's exactly right. Yeah, and sometimes I that's think that's exactly right. Yeah, that you know, it, 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 in the seventeenth century, it, it, at least those are theological issues, and they somehow have a um, you know uh, a transcendent meaning <laughs> in the way that our arguments right. over I'm a supply right. side tax cut is just you know like we take this so seriously. Right. You know what I mean? But right, but the way to understand 
why those arguments were so important in the 17th century is to make that translation or conversion, which is one of the illusions in the title, yeah. you know, is to make that conversion to the modern world. What would be the modern equivalent of this? It, now, exactly. Yeah. It's really easy to be superficial about that, but hopefully a historian, if anybody's going to try that, you know, should be able to do that pretty well and say, you know, this is what it was like for 17th century people arguing about theology, which we can look back on and shake our heads and think how silly, how trivial yeah. and so above that. It's but so we easy have exactly our own issues that we are blind to as well in saying that maybe they're not as important as we think, or, you know, maybe there are other ways to think about reconciling them. Yeah, and, and the obvious, um, you know, political issue, you know, is, is you know, homosexuality, gay marriage, civil unions, these sorts of things, but I thought the, mm-hmm. and what I, one thing I really appreciated about, appreciated about your book is, seems to me at least, to me at least, it's the kind of unspoken elephant 800 pound elephant in the room with Mitt Romney especially yeah. in academia you know yeah. and it seems like I'm non-mormon and maybe I can say mm-hmm. this at least that it seems to me that anti-mormon bigotry bigotry in academia is silently acceptable and and yeah. and I you know I, I don't want to I don't know <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no. You please go ahead. I don't want to put you on the spot. Uh, I, I was going to say, since it is so silent, I don't always hear it myself. Yeah. But I do have I do have friends. Some of my best friends are Catholics. You know, <laughs> well, I, I, I do have friends who are academics who tell me stories, and it just mm-hmm. makes me think, hmm, I guess this isn't as uh, accepting as I imagined it would. You know, I mean, I've been told things to my face that I, I was just in shock. You know, I went to a job interview saying, well, obviously the problem in the room is going to be your religion. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? They can't read my books. They can't talk to me and get to know me as an individual. Um, but, wow. the, you know, I, I mean, but you know what? It, it, it's not like Mormons are unique this way. Every yeah. what, what it should make you do is realize that there are all sorts of groups who face this and that mm-hmm. we all do this kind of labeling. Mormons do it, too, to other people. Sure. You know? So you have all these assumptions about a group, and so when you meet someone from that group, you put all those assumptions on that person, which people have done with Mitt Romney too. You yeah. know, uh, and so you know he he doesn't uh, represent all Mormons. I'm, Mormons are all different from each other, just sure. like Catholics are all different from each other. But you don't you don't go into something thinking that way. You you tend to go with what you have heard about a group, and mm-hmm. and then you put that immediately on whatever individual you happen to meet from that group. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, what I that's what I really enjoyed about this book. I was reading it and I'll just, you know, just a personal bit of, uh, of info. A few years ago, I mean, I was at a party with other academics and, and mm-hmm. I remember some people made, you know, really some anti-Mormon jokes and people were laughing <laughs> and I walked so out. So here's another source of information. See, I don't hear these things yeah, unless, and, unless and, my friends tell me. <laughs> you know, when I walked out, I didn't say anything. And I just thought, because I went to graduate school with some Mormons and yeah. um, I mean, I grew up in the deep South, not many Mormons, at least, not a big Mormon right. community that I knew of. And I, and I no. really, I remember I had a conversation with myself and I thought, you know what, you know, it's like the Mormons I know are really great people. It seems to me that, you know, Mormon communities are very cohesive. You know, they've got something figured out. Um, yeah. I myself couldn't give up coffee, <laughs> but you know, God love them. And so, I mean, I really yeah. did have to have a conversation with myself and like, you know what, that's not okay. And, yeah. and, and that's what I really enjoyed about this book is that I was mm. making those connections and, and you're very, you know, this is, 
I hate when I hate it when reviewers call books brave because generally mm-hmm. I think unless you're Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, or <laughs> <laughs> Salman Rushdie, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're not brave. <laughs> this I because look I I. I, I, I teach, I work at a conservative Catholic university. We're diocesan. Mm-hmm. My boss mm-hmm. is the archbishop. Right. <laughs> you know, I oh, mean. I know how you feel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there are certain things. I mean, I have academic freedom. Absolutely. But there are certain things that, you know, I need to be aware of. And, I right. mean, what I really respected about this book is that, you know, you put yourself out there and you don't just try to say, look, I'm a scholar of, of, of early, you know, early modern Christianity. And this is what, I mean, you, you kind of go through the Bible and you try to make some arguments and try to place kind of um, some of the verses on homosexuality. You try to place it in the context, but you can, well, I tried to show how, how people have done that, including yeah. John McNeil, who was a Jesuit himself. Yeah. I tried to show what, what the arguments were. I wasn't trying to make so much a policy paper yeah. or a policy book. It's trying to show what the different sides were, with the bigger point being, look, everybody is different. Mm-hmm. Everybody's weird, <laughs> but we're not that much weirder than each other. And in the Reformation, it was Protestant and Catholic. Yeah. You know, the, the idea of your son becoming Catholic was enough to just make a parent weep. Yeah. Um, and, and disown that child, you know, just condemn them to hell, whatever, you know. And, 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 and so the book is meant to make you reflect on those kinds of things. Is it really the step you have to take? Is that really what you have to do hmm. when someone isn't quite what you want them to be? You know, yeah. I, think, I think that's really what the book's about. And, and, and so, hmm. the, you know, the, it, the book shows um, my friend's parents, you know, their own prejudices against Mormons. But yeah. it also shows Mormon prejudices against my friend. You know, sure. so every group has prejudices heaped on them, and and they heap them on somebody else. Um, yeah. Some are maybe a little more privileged, advantaged than others, but um, you know, everybody everybody has this, and so it really should make you reflect instead of going out and inflicting it on someone else. Yeah, I, I thought it was in this way, um, you know, just a wonderful scholarly and cosmopolitan, and you know, in the best sense of the word, Christian sort sort of mm-hmm. worldview, um, and. I mean, I got to ask this question because I know there are certain things that I write and I, I wonder, I don't think, I, I'm pretty sure my boss, the archbishop, has something better to do than to uh, pick up the phone <laughs> and call me. But I'm, I am, I'm really curious. Um, at BYU, um, what, you know, how, how acceptable, you know, how, how, how well received was this book? I mean, I, I assume there's a difference between the faculty and the administration, but, um, you know, right. do, you, do you care to, you know, tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I, I, I haven't heard anyone say anything uh, bad about it. People might not like it. People might sure. not for various reasons, but I haven't heard anything like that, and I haven't had any problems. And I think part of it is because the church, like the Catholic Church, makes a distinction between, sure. you know, being homosexual and then engaging in, you know, homosexual relationships or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Mormons had different opinions about that, too. Sure, But sure. The, the official church position, you know, um, is, is pretty clear that, you know, you can be homosexual or whatever. So, and, and my book isn't really advocating sure. as much as it is describing, you know, yeah. difficult and, and interpreting stories and so on. So I think, you know, that can help explain why. Um, again, you know, Mormons are different, and there's, there's some Mormons who are, feel very strongly in favor of gay marriage, for mm-hmm. instance. But there are, but the official position of the church is against that. So, you know, it's just, that's why, you know, it doesn't surprise me among the faculty that there wouldn't be really an issue at all. Yeah. I mean, I assumed BYU would be quite a bit like, a, a, you know, a, at least a more 
traditional Catholic university. Yeah, where, that's probably true. You know, yeah, they, 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 you know, they don't want you to go out in the streets and officially sort of raise your fist against the right. church, you know, church teaching. At the same time, there is absolute academic freedom. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that that was my assumption, at least. I mean, look, after reading this book, and I got to tell you, I mean, this is I'm going to sign this to uh, to my students. With, without oh, good. a doubt. Well, it's coming out in paperback. Soon, so. <laughs> um, and I also want to check out this book, um, Sunday, A History of the First Day from oh, yeah. Babylonia to the Super Bowl. Um, yes. But could you tell us, this is always on my last question, um, what's next? Um, I mean, you, you know, I, I, you know. Hey, you, you got you got me. I'm gonna I'm always gonna uh, I'm gonna put you on Google alerts and find out when your next right. books are coming out. What come what uh well, what are you working on? Well, I um, uh, you know, each book I think has become more and more. I realize it's that every book we write is somehow personal. You yeah. know, even even the most impersonal books have something to do with us. And I think I begin to just realize this more. And like the Sunday book was was sprang really from my own frustration with Sunday, I think, growing <laughs> up and w- w- what we were supposed to do, and then this yeah. conversion book. And and then the whole issue of conversion made me realize, wait a minute, you know, hey, I was a missionary 35 years ago. I was a, one of those Mormon missionaries wearing a white shirt and name <laughs> tag, and, you know, people trying to avoid them, that kind of I, I mean, I did that, and it's like, <laughs> I want to I wanna write about that. That yeah. made a huge impression on me. It had a huge influence on my life. It, you know, took me to Europe, made me uh, interested in European history and religion. <laughs> and And so I've just I just finished writing a, a manuscript about that, and I hope that'll be published in the next year or so. And um, I'm also working on a, you know, a more historical book that I'm still developing. But the idea is about uh, maybe a bigger version of the conversion book, and that is how how do religious cultures change? Hmm. How do religions go from believing one thing to not believing it? Hmm. How do, or vice versa? How do, how how does that happen? Most of the time, we don't think it happens. I and mean, a lot of the rhetoric in religions is this has always been this way. Yeah. You know? And and most of the time, if you're a historian and you study it, it hasn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is. I can't think of anything really. The more you study, that hasn't significantly changed over time. Yeah. Uh, including morals. You know, we huh. like morals never change, but I see all kinds of moral change in history. So I'm thinking of uh, doing something bigger on that. A series of chapters on different subjects, like you know, lending money at interest. Yeah. which nowadays is just so taken for granted and sure. churches are full of bankers. But, you know, for a thousand years, that yeah. was, you were, you were in hell if you, if you did something like that in, in Christian um, civilization. Um, and then moving into, you know, other subjects like, um, uh, you know, interracial marriage, slavery, and then, you know, more, the more recent something is usually the more controversial it is. But, but there's so many things that every society accepts that once were considered immoral. And without even realizing it, you know. <laughs> so I, I find that fascinating. And no, just, it is. Just having a more historical consciousness. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, a, a Reformation-era historian who is, uh, you know, really, you know, I have a foot in the present at the same time. Well, I think I've gotten more, I've done that more since the Sunday book, I suppose, yeah. Huh, that's interesting, because I, I find myself in the 20th century, I, my first book is on the 1970s, and I'm, I'm going backwards. Well, so. yeah, you always <laughs> want to learn more, right? Yeah, yeah, so we'll meet somewhere in the 19th century, maybe. <laughs> well, well, Craig, thank you so much for your time. Um, really, thank you for having me on. This is um, uh, an excellent book, Conversions, Two Family Stories from the Reformation and Modern America. Okay, have a good day, and uh, you know, All right, look forward thank to your you. next book. See you later. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed um, my conversation with uh, Craig Harline and our discussion about his book, Conversions, Two Family Stories from the Reformation and Modern America. I hope you feel compelled and interested enough to go out and perhaps even purchase this book. And I uh, hope to um, have you join uh, me next week for another conversation on uh, new books and politics. Bye-bye.